Welcome to the Davos in the Desert podcast series. My name is Mark Oliver, and I am the producer of the Davos in the Desert podcast series. Our podcasts feature thought leaders in business and public policy. Our sessions are meant to be informative and thought-provoking. The topic of this session is legal issues that arise in acquisitions, and our guest is Brian Burt. Brian Burt is a partner and chair of the Emerging Business Group at Snell & Wilmer. Without further ado, here is David Wanatik, the CEO of Davos in the Desert and the host of our podcast series. Hello, everyone. My name is David Wanatik. I'm the CEO of Davos in the Desert, also an investment banker at a boutique uh, investment bank. Uh, I'd like to thank you for joining today's program. Uh, today, we're going to listen to a legal perspective on conducting mergers and acquisitions. Uh, speaking on this topic, very pleased to introduce Brian Burt. Uh, Brian Burt is a, uh, a partner and chairman of the Emerging Business Group at Snell & Wilmer. Uh, just a couple of words about Snell & Wilmer. It's a leading uh, law firm that was founded in 1938. It's the largest law firm in Phoenix and Arizona and one of the largest in the West that has over 500 lawyers in 16 offices. Uh, Brian Burt is one of the finest lawyers in uh, Phoenix. Uh, for those of you that are in the Phoenix area, I recommend that you attend some of his lectures, which uh, typically happen uh, the first Wednesday of the month in, in uh, Scottsdale. Um, but uh, Brian Burt uh, is a business lawyer in advising entrepreneurs and emerging growth companies in all stages of development, from formation to liquidity. He has extensive experience in corporate formation, re reorganization and governments, private equity and debt financing, shareholder owner relations, buyouts and disputes, employment and consulting agreements, and many other facets of transactions, particularly uh, mergers and acquisitions. Um, he uh, earned his law degree at Harvard Law School. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Brian, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. So do you typically represent uh, buyers or sellers more in M&A transactions? Uh, I work with both. Probably my personal practice is more on the sell side. Okay. And uh, maybe you can just say a few words about how your team at Snell & Wilmer works together um, and brings together many different professionals with different expertise uh, to uh, assist clients in uh, selling their companies. Sure. Yeah. One of the nice things about the firm is we're kind of a one-stop shop on the M&A side. So we obviously have, uh, you know, the corporate lead, which would be myself. We have uh, corporate associates we bring in to help take some of the uh, uh, take some of the burden and during the transaction. And then we have a whole range of uh, subject matter experts that can assist, ranging from tax, which is a critical part of any M&A deal. Uh, employment, employee benefits, real estate, environmental, kind of you name it, uh, we need to whoop in, you know, any number of those experts in a given deal to help, you know, facilitate due diligence and negotiation of the, uh, you know, subject matter specific issues, plus potentially do some uh, corporate cleanup along the way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, due diligence expectations sellers should have uh, when they sell their companies. Um, I would imagine that it's uh, somewhat a function of the size of the transaction. Uh, probably the larger transaction, the more intense the due diligence. Uh, and anything you want to say about how due diligence varies if the acquire or is a private or publicly held company? Yeah, so the due diligence process is probably the most unpleasant uh, for, for clients selling their company. Uh, it really 
uh, I think it's important for them to understand it's a it's a process. It's a critical portion of the uh, of the deal, and they should uh, ideally prepare well in advance to kind of collect all the documents that they're going to need to uh, to go through that. A buyer is going to want to kind of overturn you know most stones, sometimes every stone, to kind of go through the company, and make sure they understand what's happened historically. They understand. Uh, that they're getting the benefit of what they're buying, uh, understand the risk profile and be able to mitigate some of those risks. And so, you know, the length and the um, uh, kind of depth of the due diligence process kind of hinges on, you know, how the company is. If it's been around for two years, obviously less to go through than if it's been around for 30. Uh, size of the company certainly matters. Um, it's not always directly correlated to, to kind of purchase price uh, dollars. Uh, oftentimes it hinges on the complexity of the company. You know, if it's a company that just sells widgets, it may have been around for 30 years, but it's a fairly straightforward business. Maybe it has 50 employees. Uh, different animal if it's been around for five, but it's got 200 employees and has all sorts of corporate entities and other things to kind of govern that process. So, uh, but, the, but the buyer's gonna come in and, and you know, give you a list of things it wants to see. Best advice is to get that stuff assembled ahead of time together with your advisors so that when the buyer comes, you're ready to, to go quickly and don't lose time trying to uh, kind of recreate the wheel uh, once the process is kicked off. Mm -hmm. And then any um, differences that you see other than maybe the intensity of due diligence when the acquirer or is public versus a private company? Um, I mean, the, the public companies probably have uh, you know, a more uh, kind of outline process because they usually have been through it many times. They may have a whole team devoted to acquisitions. So they kind of have a, a, a kind of a plug and play approach to it, uh, which, which can be, you know, uh, easier and sometimes more difficult just depending on the company. Uh, there's a little, there's a little bit less room for some of the risks that a private company might take on. So they might be a little more focused in certain areas than others, again, depending on what industry they're in. Uh, sometimes the private companies, though, are going to do just as much, particularly if they're a private equity-backed uh, uh, venture uh, that, again, has those resources, that level of sophistication. So I think public versus private can make a difference. Sophistication of the buyer can make a difference. Risk tolerance can make a difference. All those uh, factors will kind of weigh in. Yeah, uh, I would just add that... Um... Even though it is expensive to kind of get your company cleaned up uh, before you go to market, it, sometimes you can save money by doing that. Uh, because if you don't have audited financials, for instance, and you find yourself in merger acquisition discussions and you have to scramble to find an auditor, nowadays it's very hard to find an auditor. Uh, the accounting firms are very, very busy, they're at capacity. Um, but even in more normalized times, you would have to pay maybe three times the cost of an audit if you knock on their door in desperation to get something completed very quickly because the auditors don't see any continuing business. They see, you know, one time job and you're going to get sold and that's the end of the engagement. So you get, uh, you know, have to pay a premium for that. Um, what do you think about uh, some of your sellers, the less uh, experienced ones? Uh, maybe hiring an interim CFO to help them get organized? Yeah, I mean, a couple of points there. I'll just key off of what you said on the last issue in terms of, you know, doing kind of corporate cleanup is what I call it, uh, whether that's upgrading the financials, it's making sure that those uh, taxes were paid, 
kind of doing a, a survey of how you can comply or not comply with the employment rules. Uh, really critical part of the process. Now, again, uh, you would assume most sellers, the goal is to bring as much money in as, as possible in the deal and get it done as efficiently as possible. The less you do on the cleanup side, and the more you leave, like you said, to the last minute, you're going to pay more. Oftentimes, you can't fix the issue uh, before closing. So that's going to yield a purchase price reduction, sometimes a big one, and it can kill the deal. Uh, plenty of examples. We can talk about maybe some horror stories later in the program, but uh, plenty of instances where a little mistake, uh, you know, proves to be uh, catastrophic in terms of deal price and got some recent examples where it just killed the deal altogether. And so it, it didn't need to happen, but uh, just didn't go through the cleanup ahead of time. Um, in terms of hiring a uh, kind of interim CFO or, or someone to kind of come in and, and uh, uh, take over that function, at least in the short term, I, th I think it makes a lot of sense if, if you've got kind of a historic maybe bookkeeper role but no one's really got the financial sophistication internally. Uh, that can be money well spent. Uh, bring them in, you know, a year ahead of time, at least uh, a few months ahead of time to kind of do a survey of what's there, what they know the buyer's going to expect to see, uh, start working through and upgrading those financials, even if they don't go with the audit, just, just having uh, a better sense of where everything's at and, and what, the, uh, what the holes are and issues to address is gonna be important. That, that CFO role is gonna be a key member of the deal team as you go through. And without that financial function, that, that's gonna be difficult often to, to kind of get to close. Yeah. And I suppose if the CEO is sort of the master salesman at his company, um, it could be problematic to not do diligence beforehand. Um, and, you know, when you're in negotiations, the negotiations are you know, very time consuming, very distracting. And if that prevents you from closing more sales, um, you know, that will hurt the, the valuation that you get. Um, and if the deal doesn't go through, you've missed some big opportunities because instead of selling, which is what you're good at, uh, you haven't hired a, a temporary CFO to do some of the cleanup work. Um, so again, I, I think it's important not to be penny wise and pound foolish. Uh, sometimes you need to spend a little bit of money to keep your business on track, keep the sales going and, um, get a higher multiple. Um, you just don't sit on that point in terms of, uh, I always tell clients, it's assume you've got a second job for the duration of the process and assume also that you're not going to close a deal. Assume that uh, you know you're going to continue to run the company. Maybe the deal doesn't happen because uh, often it doesn't. And you want to make sure, like you said, you've got an intact company, one that's continued to take advantage of opportunities. And if you know one guy can't do it all at the top, uh, so to the extent that the team is fairly lean, uh, bringing in again an outside advisor or maybe a couple to uh, help run those functions and, and kind of take some of the burden off of the C CEO, the owner, etc. Is again money well spent uh, and, and kind of covering your bases because there's just a you know ton of work to do as you as you you know kind of get deeper into the process mm -hmm. yeah that's one of the benefits an investment bank brings to the table is they can uh, talk to the seller and tell them what's going to be expected of them um, uh, you know what the buyers are going to want to see even before you get that. Uh, the investment bank is going to conduct a lot of due diligence and put together the offering materials, the teasers, and the sims. Um, so uh, it's important that you have everything together for the investment bank 
Um, the investment bank doesn't want to get its hands dirty, you know, going through all of your files and putting all of your work together. They'll probably insist that you hire uh, an interim CFO if, if your due, dil due diligence isn't cleaned up uh, enough. Um, what, what would you say to a client if um, he received an offer, um, somebody wants to acquire the company, um, would you, you know, just work with that client and try to execute that transaction? Or would you recommend to the client that um, maybe they should talk to an investment banker? Because even though it's flattering, they got one offer, you know, maybe there's better offers to be had if you shop around the company. No, that's right. I mean, I typically say at minimum, you know, uh, find out, get some advice, talk to a banker and figure out whether the the bid you've got or the offer, unsolicited offer you've got, and I should say, is, uh, is something that makes sense. Often people have never gone through the process. This might be their one and only transaction. They built this company over time. This is it. Big opportunity to kind of cash out and fund the retirement and say, hey, I built the business. Someone offered me, you know, 10 million bucks or whatever it is. That sounds pretty good. Uh, well, It'd be even better if you get 30 million. And so I think people uh, tend to, at some point, uh, overestimate what the company's worth in some circumstances. But when it comes to sale time, often uh, underestimate what a deal process that's run by a uh, banking uh, firm can get you. So at minimum, you know, have a conversation, understand, you know, what the multiples would be uh, for the business. People have varying views, often incorrect as to what they may be. And they may find out, for example, that, hey, if I grow the business another $2 million in EBITDA, uh, I may jump up, you know, uh, a multiple and a half on the uh, scale. So, you know, maybe I sit tight for a year or two and I can reach that next level. But again, without that background information, it's really hard to evaluate whether that offer makes a whole lot of sense. And, you know, some buyers say, hey, I... Uh, you know, I'm just uh, uh, not interested in going through a lengthy process and so forth. But typically, uh, you know, having the uh, the potential buyers come in and, and kind of go through even a even a shortened auction process creates a little bit of competition in a way that uh, you can't do on your own. Um, you know, you're you love your company, you're you think you're the best advocate, but when it comes to the M&A process, it's one thing to sell your widget. It's another thing to kind of pitch your company and the banker provides, even though they're on your team, a little more objective uh, perspective because they know the market, they know your industry, they've done the research, uh, they're able to reach out to buyers you, you've never heard of and would have no access to and, and able to present a, again, uh, not totally objective because they're your advocate, but a more objective kind of set of uh, information that they know the buyer's interested in and uh, are going to get the buyer's attention in a way that, you know, selling yourself is not going not gonna to quite accomplish. So um, I think uh, everyone should at least have that conversation and, and, and ideally, uh, you know, engage a party to help you work through that process. It's, it's probably your, your one opportunity to, to, uh, to exit and you want to do it right. Yeah. So an investment bank can uh, set the process, um, you know, set the terms when the teaser goes out, when the SIMs go out, when NDAs are due, indications of interest are due, letters of intent, um, and, and so forth. Uh, so setting the process is better than having somebody set the process for you, especially when there's only one potential buyer. Sometimes the buyer is very um, uh, honestly excited at the beginning, but they sense that nobody else is competing and they say, well, we don't have any urgency to close the deal this quarter, maybe it'll be next quarter, 
the economy starts to deteriorate or the company's performance starts to slip a little bit, and then the valuations go lower and lower and there's no real deadline. Uh, so if you have a process where there's competition, um, that is, is good. It seems kind of counterintuitive, but in the investment banking world, um, sometimes clients hire us when they're almost done with closing the deal. They think they're very close, but a lot of these 99% uh, certainty of closes never close. But sometimes they do hire us when they're pretty far along to demonstrate to the buyer that um, if you don't follow through, somebody else will come about. Mm -hmm. uh, another buyer will come about because we have an investment bank working on this. So it uh, kind of strengthens the resolve that uh, that initial buyer has. Um, one of the um, difficult things to get in some due diligence is the consent of, of a landlord or a, a licensor um, or a, a distributor that's very important. Um, how do you go about getting those consents if they're not already built into the initial agreements? And when do you pursue those? You know, they may be critical. So do you pursue them early um, or do you do it at the end? Or well, that's a great point. It's part of that um, you know, reason I strongly advocate for getting your ducks in a row ahead of time. For example, um, yeah, I've been working with a client for, for a number of years. And uh, they knew they were in a, a fairly niche market and they had some key customers and those, you know, getting those consents uh, when it comes sell time would be challenging. The customers might, you know, decide they're going to uh, ask for something in return or they might say no. And so, you know, we spent a few years when renewals came up to bake in language that would allow for a certain type of transaction. And so when that transaction did come, uh, they really didn't need any consents because they had that path kind of, you know, put together. Now that assumes you're working with your, you know, attorney on a more long-term basis. But even if you're not, what would really be helpful is to review your, your, you know, third-party contracts again, your customers, vendors, landlord, etc., ahead of time to understand. Uh, and there's basically two types of deals. There's there's an equity deal and there's an asset deal. Uh, and to the extent that you review the contracts, you're typically going to see that doing an asset deal is going to trigger, you know, most of the agreements requiring some form of consent, whereas an equity deal may, may trip uh, very little in terms of having to be, get those consents. So knowing that ahead of time may be able to steer you one approach to the other. You may be able to go to your attorney, your banker and say, hey, looks like if we're going to have a, a, a clear path here, we need to really focus on an equity deal. Uh, it's, it may be a challenge to get, you know, some of these consents ahead of time or what have you. In other cases, you know, it may, may not be as critical, but that's, again, you won't know that until you go through the process and, and determine it. Once you're in the middle of the deal, you've accepted a term sheet, you've started structuring it, and all of a sudden you figure, well, geez, now I need 20 consents. I wish I would have known that, you know, six months ago, I could have taken some action to, to, to bake that into the process, and I haven't done that. So um, opportunity is, is there to to make it work for you. So just to make sure I understood, you're saying it's easier to get consents if you do a, an equity deal versus an asset deal? No, just to clarify, it's, it, you typically have far fewer consents to get uh, in the equity deal because lots of contracts, uh, you know, if it's kind of default language, it'll say something like, to the extent you're going to assign the agreement, you've got to get the consent of the other party. Uh, but oftentimes contracts don't contemplate a sale at the equity level you know, meaning a buyer steps in and buys your shares of stock or your, 
membership interest in your limited liability company. It's often just not baked into the kind of the boilerplate. And so doing a, an equity deal where you simply have the buyer step in your shoes as the owner, the company stays intact, the contracts stay within that existing company, and there's no assignment because it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, often that's just not contemplated. So you might see, you know, one out of 10 contracts uh, deal with that. The others are either silent or, or uh, don't address it at all. And so you, you have a path to go on the equity side and just not deal with as many consents. Now, there's a few third parties that typically will understand that mechanism and, and do address it, such as landlords, uh, commonly, you know, lenders, uh, you know, will typically address that. But oftentimes your customer agreements, your vendors, it, it's just not baked in. So it provides you with a channel to, to navigate without having to get, you know, 10 or 20 consents in the, in the process. You know, sometimes the reality is um, they can't do anything about it, you know, economically. Um, you know, you're an important player for them. And sometimes they're happy because the acquirer is often a bigger company, you sure. know, a bigger company with a bigger footprint that's going to better commercialize the technology or be a more secure uh, renter of the of the premises. Um, so, um, okay, that's interesting. Um any other differences you want to talk about or advice you want to give for doing an asset sale versus a stock sale? Yeah, I mean, if you are on the sell side, obviously it's it's kind of diametrically opposed. If you're on the sell side, you really want to try to pursue a equity deal. Uh, why is that? Well, assuming that your entity is a pastor entity, if you're an LLC tax as a partnership or you're as a wholly owned disregarded entity or you're an S corp, uh, the tax stuff can be kind of worked out if, if you only have one layer of tax. Uh, if you're a C-Corp, then obviously you want to avoid paying uh, two layers of tax at the sale time. So that can magnify the interest in doing a, uh, an equity deal. But the, but the main reason, regardless of tax structure, is to be able to give the entire company uh, to the buyer, uh, which would include all the known and unknown liabilities, and, and basically have an agreement with the buyer to say, hey, here's, here's what we're on the hook for. Take the company uh, and, you know, we're going to walk away and we're not going to have to worry about things that could crop up post-closing. We're not going to worry about shutting down the company and, and doing all the things you would need to do if you keep the company and simply sell the assets. So for a seller, uh, a much preferred approach. Now, the buyer's obviously on the other side saying, hey, if I'm going to buy the company, there are circumstances where I'll do an equity deal, of course. Um, whether it's you know not having your consents, maybe there's a regulatory issue and there's some permits that they can't easily transfer, maybe any number of reasons a seller might be willing to do it. And we certainly do plenty of those types of deals, but they would prefer to do the asset deal where they basically take the assets they want, they assume limited liabilities, and they leave everything else behind for the uh, seller to address. And obviously that creates kind of a different dynamic there. So if I'm on the sell side, I'd like to start with the uh, equity deal and see if we can't get that uh, get that through. And if so, it's gonna be an easier process, less for the buyer to, or the seller to deal with post-closing. I think it mitigates quite a bit of risk uh, for the seller. And frankly, for many people who this is your one company and you're gonna you know, call it a day, you may be moving into retirement, it's just less uh, burden uh, post-closing to deal with. You want to have a kind of a clean exit and go off and, and start enjoying some of your proceeds and doing other things. And if that's the case, that allows you to, to do that much more easily than having to wind down a company that may have been around for 20 years. Are there any liabilities that attach uh, 
even when you're doing a an asset deal? There can be. There can be some successor liability and some some categories which would include uh, tax, uh, employment, environmental. So there are some issues where it can bleed over even in an asset deal. And so, you know, you, you, if you're the buyer, you want to make sure that you, you know, do your homework, do your diligence and kind of vet those issues to make sure that you're fairly comfortable that that's not going to happen. So there are those, you know, three, four categories that you're particularly concerned about. And those are the same categories, frankly, you know, people want to make sure clean and tidy in a uh, equity deal as well, um, obviously, because they're buying the whole company. Um, and there's, you know, the, the standard places where you see uh, companies not have done the cleanup, not followed the rules. Uh, you kind of see the same basket of issues. There's probably five or 10 things that keep cropping up time and time again. And uh, that's why getting your, your team in place, your banker, your lawyer, your CPA, or what have you, your, your interim CFO, uh, you know, months or ideally years before you're ready to sell just makes, makes sense to make sure you, you hit those issues before you go to market. Okay. Um, what, do, what do you think about um, owners of businesses distributing equity uh, to key employees or maybe to the temporary CFO that's uh, playing a crucial role in getting the deal done? Yeah, I mean, I'm, if, if you have an opportunity to uh, pick amongst the various incentive options uh, that are out there, I always encourage folks, you know, don't give equity if you don't have to. Why? Because you know, handing out equity, regardless of the uh, entity type, just uh, provides for uh, you know, a whole host of additional opportunities for things to go sideways. Uh, you, know, you hand employees or others all sorts of legal rights they didn't have. Uh, it's more difficult to extricate folks if, if something goes wrong and you have to terminate or, or part company. Uh, they get access to, you know, legally, typically your books and records. So there's a lot more opportunity for uh, kind of trouble, if you will. And at the end of the day, uh, when you're giving out these incentives, typically it has nothing to do with any kind of management control or anything. They simply want to know, if I help grow your company over the next three or five years or 12 months or whatever it is, I want to know I'm getting a piece of that action because I help grow and, and uh, you know, bring value to you as the owner. I'd like a little piece of that. And so we often recommend and, and clients often implement what we call liquidity bonuses. And so you can put together a plan, you know, as, as far uh, before you do a deal or even right before a deal uh, that basically says in a bonus format, uh, stick with me, uh, help grow the company. And when sale time comes, we're going to give you a bonus that's calculated based on that appreciation and, and your contributions. And it's a, you know, it doesn't create any entanglement with equity. It doesn't give them any right to review the books and records. If for something happens to the uh, relationship, it's easy to terminate that bonus relationship, that uh, bonus agreement. And it, it pays out, uh, you know, at closing. And again, that's, that's what they care about, you know, give me a share of that action. So if, if you can get away with doing that, and most companies can, I think that'd be the default only going to equity if it's just absolutely uh, kind of mission critical to get people to stay on board and, and do what you need them to. So the, the um, liquidity bonuses are, are not binary, right? They can uh, vest over time and mm -hmm. you can get, you know, partial some of your money if you leave before the five years let's say right you have a blank slate to kind of create what you want i mean most of the time it's 
they're put in place when you see the sale horizon. So, you know, at the beginning of the company, you know, if, if it's going to be 20 years out, they may not be as effective. But to the extent that you say, hey, I've got a five-year horizon, I want you guys through the core team to stick with me through closing, uh, you can say, well, I'm going to give you a piece of the action. And over the next five years, you'll vest in a portion, if assuming you stick around and assuming we let you stick around. And uh, you can do a time-based vest. You can do performance-based vest. I just worked on the one the other day where, you know, depending on how many uh, things they contributed to the uh, revenue and, and earnings, they get additional pieces of that pie. So lots of freedom to kind of construct it to motivate behavior lo you're looking for as the owner. Could mm -hmm. an employee or have you seen employees say, well, in return for that type of incentive, um, I want to get my bonus if the company reaches a certain valuation in, in five years. So you may not want to sell your company or take it public in, in five years, but you know, if you if if you know a credible authority values it at a billion dollars, that should trigger my bonus. You typically don't uh, bake that in. Why? Because you have no liquidity at the time, right? If you don't sell the company, and depending on the size of those bonuses, you may have a cash flow issue. Now, you know, people often supplement the liquidity bonus with an annual performance bonus, right? So they know that they're getting the salary opportunity to take a piece of the action they help create during that year. Uh, but you got to be really careful to promise folks a uh, kind of a liquidity event before the company sells because it gets challenging. And, and the more, the, you know, the more uh, valuable the company, the more money that's going to get tied up into that. And, you know, it contended to um, kind of do something slightly different than what the owner intends, which is, again, if you see the sale horizon three, five years out, usually you're saying to the team, you're my team. I want you to be here in your positions, rowing hard toward sale. And for someone to jump off the ship, you know, two years ahead of time doesn't quite deliver the value that you're you're incentivizing them for. So you could you do it? Yes. Typically, it's it's not how that you know that would be put together. Okay. Um, are there any common mistakes that you see, particularly sellers make, or any war stories you want to share with us? How much time do we have? Right. So it's. Uh, <laughs> There's, I mean, any number of things which, uh, you know, I'll give just a few examples. I mean, one we talked about already, and that's not getting ready for the process, right? Thinking it's a uh, two, two or three week event where they go in, they get an offer, they do a couple documents and, and you get done. Obviously that's, that's not how that works. Uh, second, not doing the corporate cleanup. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. If you, every company, no matter how clean they think it is, uh, has some skeletons, has some issues. And everything you don't clean up is going to be something that gets, uh, you know, inevitably taken off the purchase price. It, it adds legal fees to the process. It may not uh, let the deal go through because the buyer discovers the issue. And I'll give you an example uh, that we're dealing with now where, you know, had they discovered it uh, before they went to market, could have cleaned it up, could have prevented a uh, what happened uh, in our deal from happening. And but they didn't. And so they just didn't. I don't think they really knew it existed. And so. It came back to bite them, um, you know. Not hiring good, uh, you know, good team members. Uh, typically, this is your one big opportunity to put money in your pocket. You know, you may have grown the company ten or twenty years. So, to the extent that uh, you know you've got team members that maybe were were appropriate at the inception, you know, you've got a basic bookkeeper, maybe your attorney who helped you, you know, put your LLC together. I mean, you've got folks that were good for those, you know, functions, but don't have the M&A expertise, 
um, you're going to pay a, you're going to pay the price as well because they don't know how to take you through it. They don't know what the market terms are, um, and it's going to be much more difficult to uh, again to advocate for for what's appropriate in terms of horror stories. You know, we had a, a recent example where uh, you know a very large deal. Uh, teed up, and uh, they hadn't done the appropriate stuff on the hiring process. And uh, again, I don't think they understood that they they hadn't done that. They just hadn't gone through any kind of uh, audit to determine, hey, I, I didn't get this quite right. And as a result, the buyer on the other side, who was a very large uh, company, uh, very sensitive to issues like that, said, hey, we can't uh, pull the trigger and purchase you uh, unless you clean it up. And the cleanup unfortunately, took place over a period of time where we saw, you know, all saw the market uh, kind of decline over the last uh, year or so, uh, particularly in the space that this company was in. And so now the deal is on hold, may not happen. And, uh, you know, that's uh, potentially tens of millions of dollars uh, that won't be in the pocket of that owner uh, because they failed to, again, do some cleanup uh, when they had the opportunity to. And again, I just, just didn't know that they had gone kind of sideways on this issue. So that's just a recent example where a, a very small cleanup uh, could have resulted in a, a nice payday. We've seen other situations. Uh, another example I like to tell is, you know, we, we had a client who uh, was paying their employees bonuses for helping to bring in clients. A great thing, but never uh, put paperwork in place that would terminate those bonuses at some point. So when the person leaves the company, right, you think, okay, you're going to get paid out or maybe a little tail period, but it ends. So they have people who are living on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, bonus payments, not even working for the company because there was no ability to terminate it. We came in, we said, look, this is going to be an issue when you sell, you probably need to deal with it. Didn't happen. The company went and, and exploded in value. So they went to sell the company for, I think it was five or six times what it was worth when we first started talking to them about this problem, had never addressed it. Long story short, they, they, uh, these uh, people who had these bonuses said, well, uh, you know, we're going to have to get paid big dollars if you, if you want us to give these up. And the buyer said, we're not buying the company with these bonus streams in place because it's basically taking money out the door every month. It cost the buyer or the seller, our client, $6 million. Uh, of, of money that they didn't need to pay had they cleaned it up at the beginning, or even better, just put proper documents in place that would have made clear the bonus ends when you leave, or again, a little tail period. So that's a, it was a $6 million mistake that uh, they got hit with at sale time. So there's any number of horror stories that you can tell. I think another you know, common story is when folks do what you talked about earlier, and they kind of go in and uh, uh, get an unsolicited offer. Uh, you know, don't hire folks at the beginning of the process to kind of vet the terms. Uh, we get the term sheet, or maybe you know, we get it and you get it as the banker, and they say, "Hey, what do you think?" Well, you've already got a term sheet in place. You're already into the process, and typically a buyer's not going to you know start over. So, hey, you agreed to this price. You agreed to this deal structure. You know, maybe you put an earnout in there, you know, all sorts of things that we went look at and say, no, that's probably not the best uh, structure, best approach. Uh, you're not getting maximum value, but you're already, you know, 60, 60% of the way down the road and you're kind of stuck with some fairly bad terms. Maybe there's a tax issue and, uh, you know, that happens all the time. And so bring folks in again before you're ready to go to market, let alone before you're 
engaging the buyer, signing things, getting into exclusivity is, is a, a kind of uh, issue we see all, you know, like I said, all the time. Um, so I'll just make a couple of comments and you can correct me or, or share your thoughts. Um, so in addition to the reasons that you gave that you're not such a fan of uh, distributing equity, um, it could in introduce, I, I believe, some securities law violations. If you don't do the right documentation, if you don't go through the right process that you lecture about in, in some of your sessions, mm -hmm. uh, one has to be careful about how they uh, distribute equity, even you know, like uh, there are situations where inventors are struggling and they need a research associate, but on the back of a napkin, they basically say, well, I'll give you a 10% equity interest in these patents. You know, that kind of thing could, my understanding is, trigger some securities law violations, even though it seems to be a very innocent uh, thing. And then the second thing is um, sometimes regulations can save companies. So you talked about documenting hiring practices. Uh, I'm working with a trucking company now, and they're not, you know, the world's most sophisticated people. Um, if there were not regulations to require mandatory drug testing when you hire drivers or every three months on a random basis uh, do tests for some other drivers, um, they probably wouldn't have done the drug testing. Uh, but now, since it's a regulatory requirement, um, you know, the buyer would feel more comfortable you know, uh, knowing that the driver profile is is safer. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the securities issue, you hit on a good point. Anytime you give out a piece of your company, you've got to comply with federal and state securities rules. And folks don't know the rules exist, or if they do, they kind of uh, tend to, to not focus on them. They're very complicated. Uh, you know, we do it every day so we can kind of make it user-friendly. But if you don't follow the rules, A, it's a felony, so that's a bad day for you. And B, it's just something that a buyer uh, is really going to uh, be hesitant to take on any, any kind of liability like that. Uh, you may have regulatory issues that you can't kind of unring the bell for. That's one of those things you can't clean up after the fact. Uh, you may have uh, tax issues that arise out of it. Uh, and oftentimes, like you said, they kind of do things on a napkin or the equivalent. And when the buyer comes in, you know, they're not taking the risk. And we've seen a good example is where I had a client a while back, they, they gave out 40% of the company. They attempted to buy back that 40% and they wrote a couple checks, uh, but not even the check had any indication as to what it was for. And the buyer came in and said, you know, this was a large deal. It was like a like $30, $40 million deal. And they said, we're not taking the risk that these guys learn of the deal, come back and ask for their 40% of, you know, a lot of money. So that's going to be on you, uh, seller. And uh, that was pretty, you know, difficult conversation to have. And, and they ended up, you know, having to take the risk on the sell side, but they could have put in place, you know, some real basic documentation to either facilitate the distribution or oftentimes the, the uh, buyback of that equity. You know, founders tend not to, to all stick around. And so people get promised X, Y, and Z. And, and unless you have a clear trail, you know, you may have folks that, uh, uh, think they've got a piece of the action, or at least you don't have anything to prove they don't, and they come back when those dollars are on the table and, and kind of make some noise. Um, on the regulatory side, yeah, I mean, there's, if you're in a regulated industry, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the stakes are a little bit higher. Sometimes, as you say, it, it helps because they're forced to do certain things. Other times, uh, it, can, it can be a little stickier, uh, you know, when they don't quite comply with what they should, and, and again, the buyer 
looks at that and says, hey, this is a pretty uh, regulated industry, whether it's maybe in a medical device space or, or any number of spaces where you're expected to do certain things. And if you haven't, that can yield some, some greater risk the buyer might not be interested in. Um, so what do you think about earnouts? And for people that are not aware of what earnouts are, it's basically uh, when there's a pretty big, profound disagreement on what the valuation should be of the target company. And uh, the buyer says, we'll pay you some of that money now, uh, but you can earn the rest of the money uh, by managing this business unit for us. It can be a function of revenue, function of profits or other uh, sales goals, client acquisitions or whatever. Um, so what, what do you think about that as a tool to bridge valuation discrepancies? Yeah, I mean, I totally understand why buyers in certain contexts would do it. Like you said, they may disagree on value. They may be unsure whether those clients are going to stick with the buyer. Uh, you know, it may be that the owner is, is kind of, a, a you know, such a central part of the business that they say, hey, if that owner leaves, is, is you know, those customers going to going to stick around? There's there's kind of types of companies and industries where the, you know, that owner makes a difference. There's kind of personal relationships. So I understand the the uh, reason for it. Uh, in all my years, I've never seen an earnout payout in full. So I always tell if I'm representing the seller, uh, assume you're not getting a dollar of that. And would you still do the deal? And if they say, yeah, I'd still do the deal. I'd like the earnout, but I'd still do the deal even if I got zero out of it, then okay, you can proceed. But if you tell me that, yeah, I'm really counting on the full earnout or at least a good chunk, uh, I'm going to tell them all day long, you know, don't, don't go forward. Assume you're getting nothing because there's, at the end of the day, you don't control the company. And you hear sellers say, well, I'm still going to be on as the CEO for at least an interim period. I can manage that. Well, even a, a ethical buyer is obviously motivated to, to not have that earnout trigger. Um, and you assume the interests are aligned, but not necessarily. And to the extent that the, um, the buyer is maybe less than, than you know, uh, totally ethical, then they may be incentivized to uh, do things that, that uh, cause it not to be triggered. Um, we just saw a client where it was uh, key to revenue and they, um, they uh, had to just maintain the revenue and the thought was, and we told them might not, might happen, but they said, well, we, we, we feel pretty confident. We got some new revenue in the pipeline. Well, it, it, did, it took maybe 60, 90 days after closing and uh, they lost a big client. The guy just said that they decided not to renew, no fault of the seller, no fault of the buyer, nothing, no foul play. There went a $500,000 earnout gone. And so it's, it's just so difficult and you can't really draft um, even though you may try, you can't draft in a way that's going to protect your uh, seller if that's the side you're on. So uh, for any number of reasons, I think it has to be kind of icing on the cake. If, if you want to have it in there and it's a bonus and if you get it, great. If not, you won't be disappointed. But I think you got to really be careful and understand that that's a uh, reasonable request in certain circumstances, but, but typically it's just not going not gonna to pay out. Even if you don't go through with the earnout, I think it's still a good tool for the buyer to use to determine the confidence that the seller has in their forecasts. So, you know, if the seller says, yeah, we're going to, you know, revenue is going to go up 50% for the next five years. Um, and then you mentioned an earnout, and the first reaction is, no, I don't want anything to do with that earnout. Then, you know, that would cause doubt as to the credibility of those forecasts. So it's a good tool for buyers to use to, to at least suss that out. Oh, totally agree. Totally agree. And if I'm on the buy side, which which I am uh, 
uh, you know, from time to time, I, I totally agree. I say, hey, you know, you've got these hockey stick projections. Let's let's even though the buyer may not be, uh, re, you know, requiring an earnout, just the fact that they throw it out there, uh, all of a sudden, like you say, if you get that kind of reaction, it shows you that maybe the price is a bit too high, uh, and you get them to sharpen those pencils and say, well, I think it probably is X. We were kind of reaching, you know, stretch goals there, and so maybe uh, we should refine a little bit and. It can be certainly a tool on the buy side to, to drill down on what people really think is going to happen. Great. So I just have two more quick issues. Um, maybe tell us what post-closing adjustments are about. Sure. So, I mean, typically you have a working capital adjustment and, you know, working capital is your, your measure of, uh, of uh, what it takes to kind of run the company on a, on a monthly and annual basis. You know, different companies have different uh, capital requirements, cash requirements, et cetera. And so what you usually do is come up with a formula that looks at the historic working capital requirements. For some companies, it's you know 100 grand a month. Other times, it's it could be a million dollars. It just depends on the size of the company. And you create a formula, and you when you close, you come up with an estimate. And you know there's a lot of moving parts, typically. The bigger the company, the more moving parts there may be. And you come up with an estimate. And you say, hey, based on this, it looks like you hit your number no adjustment, or it looks like you're a little shy, we're going to we're gonna decrease the purchase price of closing a little bit, uh, or you may get, get some money in closing. And then typically within a 60, 90 day period, there will be an opportunity after the deal's done to sit there and say, okay, now we've got final numbers. Let's measure that, plug them in the formula, compare it to what we thought the estimate was, and then true it up. And so that uh, usually happens. There's often a debate between the buyer and seller as to what the working capital requirement is. Uh, typically, the true-up process doesn't yield a whole lot of uh, controversy unless, you know, the formula is very loose, and I encourage, you know, both sides to really drill down on what's expected. Sometimes the adjustment is, is uh, focused on maybe instead of working capital, maybe it's inventory. Uh, it could be other things, but it's, it's typically things that you can't be 100% sure of at close, and so you provide a post-closing opportunity to, again, kind of true up the numbers and, and make it uh, so that it was, you know, fair for, for both sides there. Yeah, just one thing I'll mention. Um, if you're the buyer, um, you know you want to be careful of the scenario. So, um, if the uh, seller has been growing very quickly and getting more engaged in capital-intensive businesses, so let's say that historically they've been in the services business, which is not very capital-intensive, but then they um, transform their business model to get very active in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, the capital intensity is rising. So you would want a um, shorter period of time to do an average working capital. You wouldn't want two or three years because that was service oriented. Maybe they were growing slower in those years, but now the last three or four months, they've been much more focused on manufacturing and growing much more quickly. Um, you would want you know a smaller look back period, maybe six months or sure. three months even. Um, Great point. Anyway, uh, last issue, um, escrows, um, how, what percent in general escrows should a seller anticipate holding back and how do they get released? Yeah, so there may be an escrow uh, for that working capital adjustment we just talked about. Uh, and that's typically going to hinge on in terms of size, uh, you know, how much dollars are, are, you know, in the working capital number, bigger the number, maybe the bigger escrow. 
that's typically held for a very short period of time, uh, just until that's resolved, typically, you know, 60, 90 days after. But there's an indemnity escrow, which is the main escrow that would give the uh, buyer some recourse, some cash sitting there if there's an indemnity claim. You know, there's reps and warranties that you put out weren't true, you breached a covenant, and so they want to have a little bit of money in the hopper. They don't have to chase the seller for it. It's, it's dollars available in a third-party escrow. That uh, escrow can be oftentimes anywhere from, you know, six months to, you know, 36 months, usually kind of 12 to 24 is, is pretty standard. Um, and the size of it will depend on if you do a traditional deal, it might be 10, 20, 30% range of purchase price. If you do a deal where there's rep and warranty insurance, which has uh, come become very popular in the last uh, you know, two or three years here, and now you see lots of deals doing them if you hit the right deal size, because it's a way to mitigate risk for both sides. Uh, oftentimes that 10, 20, 30% escrow gets replaced with a much smaller escrow that reflects the uh, essentially the deductible which they call the retention, uh, kind of the deductible on that policy. And that total deductible might be a percent. And they ask often the seller to put a half percent in. So instead of, you know, 10, 20, 30%, you're putting a half percent in. And so it, it you know, it's obviously a very different uh, metric there. Uh, but again, it will depend on whether that's a part of the deal or not. If you're a seller and you can get the rep and warranty insurance, it's often a much, much simpler process and, and a much less, uh, post-closing risk for you. So you often, uh, you know, pursue that opportunity. In uh, M&A indemnity insurance, do both sides typically split the premiums? Split it it really depends. I mean, if, if it's a, if it's a, uh, a kind of a hot seller and the buyer, you know, you did a process often with a banker, you know, I, I see uh, lots of uh, buyers just pick up that, that price and kind of bake it into the purchase price. They'll usually split the retention and say, hey, let's each be on the hook for, for half of that. But it's a small dollar. Again, a half percent of your purchase price. You're happy to put that in there. I tell my clients, assume that's money you're not getting back. And if you do, great. Often they do get it back. But assuming it's it's kind of a, you know, the price you paid to, to, to have a deal that's much less, you know, uh, kind of risk uh, to you post-closing than you would otherwise have. But uh, often the buyers will, will pick that up. Most I've seen it split. Um, but often I see, more often I see the buyers will, will pick that up. Okay, great. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground. I'd like to thank Brian Burt from Snell and Wilmer for taking all this time and doing such a good job of educating us. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And if you are contemplating being involved in a merger or acquisition, uh, feel free to reach out to Brian. He's uh, in Phoenix, but he has clients all over the country and uh, he can take good care of you. Thank you. Thanks, David.